0: One of my all-time favorite movies, and uh, you—you'll uh, get to fill in the blank for me here—is uh, a movie that I think is probably one of the best movies ever. Okay, and it's not a classic, but uh, you finish this statement for me: Life is like a box of. All right, if you love Forrest Gump, raise your hand. All right, if you think it's one of the best movies ever, raise your hand. All right, good. I'm in good company. Uh, But I'm going to change it up today. Life is not a box of chocolates. Life is a bunch of buckets. Not quite as ringy and catchy as uh, as chocolate is. Uh, But I do want to talk about our life as a bunch of buckets. And if you look at this bucket, you just kind of see that's just a good old standard Lowe's Home Depot kind of bucket that you just work bucket. It's a utility bucket. It's a bucket that serves you and you it's a big bucket because it takes up a lot of time whenever you're washing something or painting something or doing something. This represents work. The work us, that, that, that part that we will spend eight, nine, ten hours on and we will do everything we can. We'll give up, we'll get up in the morning, we'll go to it, we'll give it our best and we'll come home exhausted and tired and give the family what's left over sometimes. Sometimes we're better on the job, more patient and kind on the job than we are with our own family. But that's just maybe how we do it. I don't know if that's right. I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying that that's how we do life. We do buckets and we even measure sometimes the quality of who we are. We put our self-image in our bucket and how, whatever our job is, that is one of the buckets. That's not all the buckets though. There is a beautiful decorative bucket that represents our family. We do this nondescript kind of bucket so that we can have a prettier bucket here. Maybe something that we can decorate with, call it our home, call it our family. We want to provide opportunities for our kids. We want to provide the chances uh, and opportunities when they grow up to go to good schools and be a part of good sports and be a part of these opportunities out there. And we do this so we can do this. Hopefully we don't just neglect this. It is important that we keep that in a priority, even though it's not the bigger bucket. This may get most of our time. This will get uh, the second probably amount of our time if we're kind of keeping it in in some kind of a scaled system here. But there's another bucket, if you didn't see it, kind of just barely sticking out there that you don't want to miss. And this is what I'm going to call our hobby bucket. Uh, it's red because... It's the Razorbacks, maybe your hobby. Uh, you you like to travel around. You have uh, season tickets. You go to all the games. You chase them around the country. There could be a lot of different colors if you're a Sooner fan. Sorry, that but it could be your bucket or, or, or something like that. But I'm going to call it a Razorback because we're in Razorback country. Uh, but, you know, this doesn't have to be sports. This could be anything. It is a woven basket. It could be an artsy bucket, okay? This could be your art. So this represents the hobbies of your life. Those things that you... Like to do that. You have to do this and you have to balance these two things out because sometimes you would rather be doing this than this. And you always want to do this over this, but you got to do this to be able to do this. Does that make sense? You know, this is one of those things that you do now. I'll, I'll I'll have coffee with somebody and I'll ask them, I'll say, what do you do for fun? And many times I say, oh, I don't have time. I got so much work to do and so much family to do. I don't have time for me. Uh, this is called the me bucket. This is something you choose to do. Hopefully nobody tells you to do th- this part. But again, it could be motorcycles. It could be CrossFit for me. It could be gaming, uh, fantasy league. It could be any number of things. It could be that, okay? That is our public life. And this is what everyone gets to see. And then what we do with this right here is we then take it and there's another life out there. It's called social media bucket. Okay. This is when we choose out of all these buckets to tell the world about. Okay. This is a pretty bucket because it reflects who we are. Okay. It has a reflection of me and I get to choose the reflection that I get to put out in the world. I get to choose the photos that I post, the stories that I tell. I get to get, get to determine how the world sees me. I think I'm getting to determine how the world sees me. Whenever you see somebody posting selfies all the time, you think narcissist. They're thinking I'm just posting me. You know, uh there's different kinds of thought behind that, but this is this hasn't always been a bucket but it's a bucket today, and it's a big bucket. It's the social media from Twitter to Facebook to uh, Instagram to uh, to Snapchat. You, The list goes on and on. Uh, a book was written recently, and uh, I, I actually got it, recommended it to my son. He devoured it. Uh, Caleb did, and uh, I'm still inching my way through it. But this is one of the quotes that it says in there. People do social, social media for likes. People take pictures and experience things and go to places for the reaction that they're going to get on social media. Now think about that. I, I, I can, I can identify with that. I have been that person who I can't wait to post this or I will take that photo just so I can post it. And I, I know people who will adventure out just not because not the, they do it all the time. It's just because they want, that's the image that they want the world to see about them. But notice what goes on. Social media exacerbates inauthenticity. One of the things that our culture values is authenticity, but we, we give the world what we want them to see. We want to paint an image of who they, who, who our life is better than their life. Not, and we don't say that, but we don't typically paint our worst days on social media. If you do, I promise you people don't enjoy watching it. Okay. So, uh, think about it there as you, as you move ahead into your stuff. But here's, here's, here's a big question I'm going to ask throughout this message. Does my perception match my reality? I have it all together. I look good. My family looks good. My job looks good. I'm really good on in my hobbies and what I do. And so I want the world to see that I'm good on the job. I'm good with my family and my hobbies and my, my pastime. This is what I do. This is my image. I, I There's so much about this right here that's incredible. There are really people out there who get paid to help you better present yourself on social medias to manage your social media so that you'll get more people to like you. So you'll find more of people uh, inquiring about you. It's incredible, but this is the world that we live in. Do your, does my perception match my reality? This is what the world sees. This is 70 to 85% of us, but there's so much more. You know, there's more. You know, there's more because sometimes we make the world look like we have a great marriage. But in reality, we're one bad argument away from ending it and walking out the door. Either them or us or me. Them or the other person. We're, we're, we're either one bad one more coaching experience away from losing our job. We're, we're, we're really not that good at what we, what we want to appear. We're, we're really, there's, there's, there's a lot of mess up in my life, but I am not going to put that out there because that's the bucket. Let's see if I can get it out of here without breaking it anymore. That's the bucket that we don't want to talk about. And if you look, there's lots of thousands upon thousands, there may be tens of thousands, I can't even begin to count them, a broken glass that makes up this bucket. And in fact, if you were to hold this and run your finger down it, you could feel the edges of the glass that has been made up of this. If you you can see the light through it, you can see that this is a mosaic unto itself. And this is the life that we don't want to talk about. This is the life that behind closed doors that in the quietness of our own souls, that's the life that really rules the rest of these. We we build it from the, t- from the bottom up and we make sure this is all looking good. But in reality, this right here is on the inside of every single one of those. We take that broken self to work. We bring that broken self into a marriage. I'll tell people all the time, you know who you're marrying? You're marrying them and you're marrying their past, especially in a blended family. I said, you know what? You're marrying that person's ex. And they always go, ooh, you are. Because you're marrying their past. I mean, good, bad, or indifferent, I, you can make out of it what, what you will. Because this is who I am, broken pieces and all. It doesn't mean I'm hopeless. It doesn't mean it's all it's all over and done. In fact, this entire message series has been about how God can take our brokenness and make it beautiful again. How How God can take our shambles and make them right again. How God can shine light even on our brokenness and it be okay. Now this is enough to make you want to not talk about it. But here's, there's something else. There's another bucket. That's what I want to talk about today. We can pretty much handle most of our life In fact, some of us become really good masters at manipulating the world around us and how the world sees us and how we live in our world. And, you know, we let people that may get close enough to us, they may be able to feel the rough edges and they may see the brokenness of our life and they may see our past and all that kind of stuff. But there's a part of me that I just really don't want to talk about. There's a part of me I can't control, I can't get master of. I can master 75, 80% of my life, but there's a part of my life that, man, it has got me by the throat and I can't seem to master this. And it's in that last 10 to 15, maybe 8% of our life that becomes the Achilles heel. It becomes the... What, 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 when Jesus is transforming our life all the way through, he's murking his great work all the way through. He is wanting to work here, but he's also, my, my friend, he's wanting to work here. And he's not going to be satisfied till he gets to here. But we don't want to talk about this part. Either it's a hobby of ours or it's a habit of ours or it's a hang-up of ours or it's something in our life, and we just don't want to go there. Our spouse may not even know about this. Our best friends may not know about it. Romans 7 is where we're at today. If you can turn in your Bibles there. We talked last week about, the past several weeks about how Jesus does this justifying work in us when he makes us right with God. That's the beauty of the cross. He makes us right. We don't make ourselves, for it's by faith that we are justified. Abraham, David, everyone, all the way down to us, faith after faith, has been justified by the work and the finished work of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. But here's the great thing is, is the work of his justification is only the beginning of our salvation. It's not the end game he's going to continue to work on us and he's going to move from justification to the sanctification process. And when he does the sanctification process is when sometimes we're put into the fire and sometimes we're put into the chisels and sometimes we're put taking those broken pieces and he's sanding them off. And sometimes he's addressing the dark buckets of our life and he's wanting to address them and And and, and some some scholars for years have been debating over chapter 7 whether or not this is Paul actually talking about his life before becoming a Christian and then how he struggled. Origen believed that. Early church father believed that this is like Paul dating back in time to whenever he, before he became a follower of Christ and how he struggled with uh, the law and how the law couldn't justify him. And certainly that was the case. And he realized that in the whole process. But it's not that. It was Augustine who came, who, who interpreted it totally different. He said, he, "He said, no, this is not pre-salvation. This is post-salvation. This is after his conversion experience, because one biggest thing is he's talking in the present tense. He's been talking in the past tense up until now, and then now we're going to go into the present tense as if Paul is right now, presently dealing with this struggle." And so understanding that alone and how since reformers and up until this day, that's kind of the predominant view of what's going on in chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. So let me just read this and, and just kind of let it marinate with you for, for a few moments. For I do not, present tense, understand. Just let that sit there for a moment. I don't understand. Paul, Paul, all your wisdom and all the things that you've written and the deep doctrines that you've written about here, Paul. I mean, how is it that now you come out and you're so transparent and you're so real and you're so vulnerable with yourself and you say, listen, I just don't understand. I don't understand what I'm doing. And guys, we got to get to that point in our life when we got to we realize that I don't have all the answers and I can't fix myself. I don't have all the answers and I can't fix myself. I don't have all the answers and I can't fix myself. I don't know what I'm doing. I do the practice. I do, I do not practice, uh, for I do not practice, excuse me, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now is no longer I, but The sin that dwells in me, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me and that is in my flesh for I have the desire, I want to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. I I don't want this dark spot that nobody else knows about, but I don't know how to get rid of it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see the tension in the, in the, in the very present tense. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells in me, the sin that dwells in me. God in his amazing dealing with our brokenness is going to want to deal with the part of us that we may not want to deal with. And it could be easily an action, an attitude, a disposition, a family tradition, a way you grew up, This, the way I was raised. It could be any number of things that God is wanting to deal with, but he is wanting to deal with the sin that lives in me. And he's calling us to a better life. This is something that Paul struggled with all his life. In the beginning, when he wrote Galatians, one of the very first letters that he wrote, he understood this concept then because in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So there's this war going on. There's a spirit in the flesh, the spirit in the flesh, and they're fighting against the other. for they are opposed to each other to keep one from doing the thing, things you want to do. I don't want to lose my temper with my spouse, but I did it again. I don't want to look at that site, but I've gone there again. I don't want to have that conversation, but I had that conversation again. I don't want to overspend again this month, but I overspent again this month. You just fill in the blank. There's 101 things that you can put in that blank. And, and Paul says, listen, they're constantly fighting with each other. He said in the beginning of his ministry, he writes Romans in, in the middle of his ministry from Corinth. And then you go to the end of his life. This is not something that Paul ever really got over. This is something that he was in the battle with every day of his life. Every day. There's never, it's never going to get easy. There will always be a battle to see what's going to win. Are you going to let the flesh win and what nature tells you to do? Or are you going to let the spirit win and what God is trying to do in you? Think about it. Because even at the end of his life, he was writing young Timothy, first Timothy chapter one, verse 15 says, Christ came, uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul raises his hand, and says, I am the number one sinner of them all. Present, active, indicative, Greek language there, meaning he right now present in this time. It wasn't like, hey, before I became a Christian, I was the worst guy ever. I killed people, you know that? But now I'm kind of, I'm I'm better, I've improved my, no, no. He said, listen, I'm struggling with this till the day I die. Paul is showing us that to be a child of God, to be saved as we say, is an already and a not yet experience. I am already justified by Christ, but I'm not there yet. I've not arrived. I've not achieved. I've not gotten rid of all the little black buckets in my life. In fact, if we're really honest, sometimes we might even have multiple black buckets. And we just kind of don't want to deal with them. So let's hide them. And let's not talk about them. What does this look like? I'm calling it when we're stuck. Because as Paul's like, man, the things I don't want to do, I do it. The things I do want to do, I don't do it. He's stuck. So what are symptoms of stuckness? If that's even a word, it is now, okay? Two symptoms of being stuck is sin will own you as a person. Acknowledge it. Own it. Own the fact that, yes... I've got 10% of my life I can't seem to get my arms around I can't seem to get victory and Satan continues to have victory in this area of my life. If you were here on, with us on Good Friday and, you, and that, that evening service we had these gall strips that we handed out to everyone when they came in and then in the, the gathering we talked about hey listen you need to be careful because Jesus went to the cross because of the sin that easily entangles us and then you all took these, these, these bands and you wore them for several days and then on Easter Sunday we came in and we hung them on the cross symbol yes victory i hope only you know the three things that i wrote on mine i filled up mine i wrote it and i put it on there and i tell you to this day as early as yesterday i'm battling it i'm gonna have to fight every single day i'm gonna have to fight it i'm gonna have to push it back because this is what happens. It easily entangles us. Hebrews 12, uh, 12 one, he says, throw off those things, everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles us, traps us. It means literally to weave together like the fabric of your shirt that you're wearing right now. You can't see the little strands, but it's woven together thousands and Tens of thousands of time and that it's been woven together to make the shirt that you're, that you're wearing. Well, that's what happens with sin is it weaves itself into our life. Chapter six, verse 12. I want to start where we ended last week, or I don't want to miss where we ended off last week. Verse 12, it says, let not sin. All these little fabrics of our, of our existence. Therefore, let sin reign or be woven. I'll translate it like that. Be woven into your mortal body to make you obey its passions. What happens is we get, it gets woven into us and then it controls us. See, one thing we have to learn about sin. Sin is first a noun and then it is a verb. It is first me. Me. And then it's something I do. We think if I'll just clean up what I do or nobody sees what I do, then I'm all okay. No, 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 I got to come back to the source of it. It's me. I'm broken. I've got to be fixed. Jesus has got to do a work in Me, Chapter 7, verse 5. I'm going to be skipping around a lot today, so just make note. He said in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, it mentions passions and desires multiple times, aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's what happens when sin comes in, creeps in. So let's talk about, as if you're journeying through life here, let's talk about what where you get stuck as your journey. There's lots of ways you can get stuck. Just like in your car, you can get stuck. Well, you can get stuck in some dark alley. Those dark alleys are no fun. You get a dark alley, you want to be packing some heat, okay? You get a dark alley, I want to call those emotional change in dark spots in our life. You intentionally avoid dark alleys. Because there, and so therefore a dark alley can be something in our life that we will not talk about with anybody. Even our significant other. We won't talk about it with mom and dad and our brothers and sisters. We won't, even, we won't even address it. These are things that maybe for generations have been passed down. They're unresolved, unrepented of, undealt with sins that have happened in my family, in your family, and has gone on unaddressed for years and, years and years and years and years and years and years. It's resulted in anger and fear and envy and attitudes of blind spots in ourselves, and we just don't deal with them. we got to all realize... Every last one of us in this room has wounds that you're carrying through life. Sometimes it's carrying you. This is what John Eldredge said in one of his great books. He said, every man, and he's written, writing it to men, so it could be women, people, humans. Every human carries a wound. I've never met a man or a person without one. No matter how good my uh, your life may have seemed to you, you live in a broken world full of broken people. Your mother and your father, no matter how wonderful, couldn't have been perfect. She is the daughter of Eve and he is the son of Adam. So there is no crossing through the country without having taken a wound. Every wound, whether it is assaultive or passive. Sometimes these wounds... Come to us and sometimes we go to the wound. Sometimes we create them. Sometimes they're created and delivered to us, but they're delivered with a message. And every wound, whether it's assaulted, delivered with a message and the message feels final and true and absolutely true because it is delivered with such force and our reaction to it shapes our personalities in a very significant ways. And from that flows, listen to this, the false self, the false self. Not the real authentic self, the false self. Most of the human beings you meet are living out a false self, a pose which is directly related to his wound. I can't give you enough examples of wounds, scars, that happen in our childhood, that happen from past relationships, that happen from work or family or friends or trusted people or priests or our churches or what, there's so many inflictors of wounds because we haven't been inflicted. Hurt people, hurt people. It's just a part of life. Now what are we gonna do with the wound that we're given? One book that I read recently said 60% of the United States lives in a state of anxiety and fear. So we take pills to compensate for that. We self-medicate to deal with the 60% of the people out there. And I got to thinking about, oh, what was it chapter 1 when we were reading in Romans where it talked about all these different, 21 different ways that we find ourselves messed up, jacked up, sinful in this life, foolish, faithless, heartless, relentless. I think those are the verses, chapter one, verse 31. It says, yeah, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, I thought about faithless. I've been thinking about that one a long time because I said this on Friday night, on Good Friday. I said, I said, probably one of the most accepted sins, most unconfessed sins of our church, of our day, of Christianity, is that sin right there. It's because of fearfulness. See, When people are faithless, it's because they're fearful. They don't have faith because they have more fear than they have faith. Fear clips the wings of faith. And all of a sudden, you're not able to fly. You're not able to move. You're not able to go. You're not able to serve. You're not able to do. And you get locked in. So let me ask you this. What's a dark alley of your life? And that person sitting right next to you may not even know what it is. And you don't want to talk about it with anybody. Beware. Number two, detours. This is that pride, those possessions, those. Pleasures out there in life. Swindoll calls them the self, the self, silver and sex of this world, and we're just driven by these desires that draw us in. And he mentions in First John chapter two, verse sixteen, for the world offers only the cravings of physical pleasures, the cravings of everything we see, the pride of, of of our achievement and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And man, every time Jesus was tempted in the garden, or every time Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, every one of those point back to those three right there. I don't have time to go into all of that. But listen, one of the greatest struggles of our society today that's again an acceptable sin of our society is the materialism of our society. It's the idolatry of our age to where we are living so enamored with stuff and more and get and get and get that we are in poverty and don't know it. Mother Teresa was traveling through America one time, was invited to the White House, set it down with President Reagan, was given the opportunity to speak to the press corps and to talk about the state of America from her perspective. They set her up, they teed her up, and she just said this, there is no greater poverty than the poverty of the soul. And she said, America is full of stuff, but they're empty in their soul. Be careful. You may be stuck chasing after pleasures. What's a pleasure? What's something that you're stuck in? Number three, it's a rut. The rut of addictions and habits. Hell, oh, there's habits and addictions. There are a dime a dozen. You can throw a rock in any direction. It could be eating and smoking and drinking and drugs and gaming and social media and buying and hoarding. It could be any number of things that we're just addicted to. It's just something that drives us. Anxiety, procrastination, over over overeating, internet, social media, and laziness are some of the most real issues of our day, Todd Hunter said. These are the things that control us and consume us. And we get in a rut and we live it out day after day after day and it becomes a part of our life. I've seen it multiple times in 27 years of pastoring. I'll tell you about one of them. One person in particular that I helped come to faith in Christ and I just see this beautiful thing happen in in, in his life and in his family and how it trickled on and this beautiful thing happened. And and this, this man, I walked with him and we traveled the world together and we went on global adventures together and we did discipleship groups together and we spent a lot of time together. And in that time, finally after a lot of years together, he told me about this. He didn't tell very many people about it, but he told me about this. So we worked through that and we worked through it and we tried to work through it and tried to get help, professional help. It was big. And I'm going to cut to the end of the story because the end of the story ends with him losing his life and his family and everything. And this guy... He could touch real estate and it would turn to gold. He would touch a supplier community and it would turn to gold. Everything turned to gold that he did. But there was one area of his life that he could not get mastery over. And that was the toxin that killed it all. I've seen this happen. A marriage of 50 years. Go along and Looked good on the outside. Again, everything looked good here. There was some brokenness here, but the real darkness came out when the husband of 50 years had had tremendous addiction to porn. This is, a, this is a man who for years had taught in the church, had taught children in the church, had taught many people in the church, but this was an addiction that had overcome him to the point that this addiction and his his, his commitment to it, he spent tens of thousands of dollars And I got got horror stories to the point that his wife was attempted suicide because of this right here. I got good news on that story. They are together today. They are well. And it's a beautiful story of redemption. But you know what had to happen? This had to be addressed. It couldn't be hidden no longer. There's so much more. I led a man to the Lord when I was pastoring over in northeastern Arkansas. He had a gambling addiction. He ends up spending time in prison, losing everything, losing his family, losing his kids. And he was so good. He became one of the ushers in our church, was going to become one of the deacons in our church. But he had this problem, and this problem became greater than all his successes. This is a big issue. What kind of rut are you in? Number four, are you stalled? When you get stalled, you just stop. God wants to move, but you say no. I'm not gonna do it. The things I don't, the things I know to do, I'm not gonna do. I'm just, I'm just not gonna give. I'm just not gonna serve. I'm just not gonna go. I'm just not, I'm just not. I've been a Christian long enough and I've learned how to say no forceful enough. I know how to turn off the voice of God in my heart and head. And I'm just not gonna do it. Like a stubborn child. These are not called sins of commission. These are sins of commission or things that I do that are wrong, that are against God's laws. But this is called a sin of omission. When I'm supposed to do something, but I choose of my own selfish will, I'm not going to do it. Thank you so much. James chapter 4 verse 17, jot it down. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. It's just as much sin as an ax murder. If I know what I'm supposed to do and I don't do it. Here, let me ask you that question again. Does my perception match my reality? A survey that was taken among a Christian mentors network of well-established in the faith people who had been believers for many years. 21 years was the average length of time of those who took this survey Of those who took the survey, 90% of those were leaders in their churches. Yet this is what they found. That 45% of those who consider themselves leaders in their churches had a secret sin. Something nearly half one out of every two has Something that they don't want to talk about, they don't want to tell their spouse about, they don't want to tell their one or another brother about, they don't, a sister about, they, they're just going to keep it to themselves and they're going to live with it. And it could be big and it could be ugly or it could be just simple a sin of omission. I'm just not going to do it. I love Rick and Jane Strack if you know them, members of our church for a number of years. Um, they'll tell you they were living a sin of omission. They knew what God, they'd they moved here to retire, if you will, but they had lots of life in them and they knew they had opportunities to do and to serve and they had put a fence up and said, God, I will serve you within this fence in my comfort zone, but I am not going to go beyond this. And then God asked him to go beyond it. God asked Jane to go into on, on a global adventure with me to West Africa, to a Muslim nation, and to share the gospel of Christ with the people there that many of them did not know. And, and, and Jane gets on a plane, and boy, I tell you, it was a hard pill for, 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 for Rick to swallow. But he, and he said, okay, you can go. Just bring her back. And uh, you don't have to come back, but you got to make sure she comes back. And so uh, we go. And it was so beautiful to be sitting in this village right here where Jane is teaching hundreds of people. Creation to Christ for the very first time she's a nurse she's not a professional teacher she's a nurse she is teaching it like she has like she's Billy Graham in the middle of this village spot on flawless to the T because she offered up herself in obedience to what God had called her to do way outside of her comfort zone. Rick was okay. You brought her back. Thank you so much. We'd done our little global adventure thing. Thank you. Tip your hat. Three years later, God wouldn't let Rick get by with it. God called Rick and Rick had lived the sin of omission long enough until finally he got on a plane with me and went to West Africa. And now he's one of our trustees in our church and probably one of the biggest advocates of our trustees to say, we got to keep missions front burner. It changes you. It works in you. God has got so many more edges to walk off every single one of us in so many things that he wants to address and give us victory in if we will say, yes, Lord. Yes. Where are you stalled? What has God called you to do that you're not doing? Think about it. Write it down. What do we do next? Where do we go from here? Well, you can continue on this path and the next move that you'll make will be self-destruction. Or you can embrace the Savior. So that's what I want to say. Number two is that you embrace the Savior because sin's going to wreck your life. Okay, sin will have a hold of your life and, and it will it will, it will will strangle your life out and the toxin in this will spill into this. It will spill into the rest of your life until you're a piece of news in the paper. But there's a Savior who wants to set you free. Now, I'm going to read a verse to you, but i got to give you the context of where, where Paul is coming from. Romans were brutal with their murdering of people. I told you last week all that they did to beat Jesus before he ever got to the cross, so most likely he bled to death on the cross. If you were here, gruesome as it may have been, I just needed to go there. But they would do heinous, inhumane things. If I had killed somebody, what they would do is they would take the body, the corpse of the person that I would kill, and they would chain that body to me. So I would literally have to face and deal with everywhere I went, the body of the person that I kill. They would chain them to me. So I would smell the stench. I would have to walk in the stench. I would have to sleep when I would go to bed at night. I would literally have to sleep with with, with the corpse. And then I would get up in the morning and I would go about my life as best I could. But there's always attached to me this dead body that I'm dragging. And every day it's stinking worse. And every day it's decomposing more. And every day you understand the nastiness of that. Now read verse 24 in light of that. Chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This thing that I'm dragging through life, this this wretchedness, this nastiness, this grossness, this stench of, of, of yes, some mistakes and, yes, some brokenness. Who's going to deliver me? Who's going to give me hope? Who's going to give me future? Who, who? And who's going to deliver me from this? And so many, so many, so many. You know and I know them. And maybe you, maybe that person is living. Verse 24, that is your story and right now your hands are sweaty and you're just gripped by it and the reality of it is that this is bigger to you than that bucket right there. Who's going to deliver me from this? And I've said all along, until we embrace our brokenness, we cannot experience God's wholeness. Until I embrace that, until I deal with that, does my perception match my reality? Does my perception match my reality? Perception is I have it all together. I look good when I go out the door. Reality is I'm painfully stuck. So are you living verse 24? Are you living verse 25? Who? Who's going to deliver me from the stench of this broken body? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, say it with me. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Say it like you mean it. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Louder. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't do it. I love it that he asked, who will deliver me? Not what will deliver me. It's not what pill, what drug, what new job, what new relationship, what new person out there, but who will deliver me. It will be the Lord Jesus Christ. The life that I want to live, I don't live many times because I'm still dragging around the corpse of my dead flesh and I need deliverance from it. What do I do? How do I get there? How do I make sure my perception and my reality line up how do I make sure? I can, I got two options. I can conceal and cope or I can confess and correct. Conceal and cope is what a lot of people do. Hide it. Don't talk about it. Get it out of here. Certainly don't put it on social media. Let's get rid of all of it and nobody needs to know. Conceal it. Or you can confess and correct. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You can't keep living the same way and expect different results. I close with this quote. God exalted. As God is exalted in the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved. I love it. We want to solve all of our problems. we to fix all of our life. Get Christ in the right place in our life and let him fix the brokenness of our life. Does your perception match your reality? I was in uh, Fort Walton, Florida one time and uh, uh, was talking to some residents, working at a CrossFit gym actually, and uh, uh, talking to some residents there. Worked at Eglin Air Force Base, which is just there. It's where the Army Rangers train for swamp phase. It's, it's, there's a lot of training that goes on there and a lot of, a lot of planes. If you've ever been to Destin, you've seen the the planes and helicopters go up and down the beach. It's kind of a, kind of a cool thing to see. But uh, there was one time that they were telling me that the residents of Fort Walton didn't know what had happened, but all of a sudden windows started breaking in their homes. And it was because they had tested out at Fort Eglin. A bunker-busting bomb. A bunker-busting bomb. It was interesting to understand what that was. I had to go look it up. It's a bomb that actually shoots from a plane and goes down, and then it has like two charges to it. And I'm going to way mess it up here if you're in the Air Force and know thinking about this. This is the, the paraphrased version of it. And the very first head explodes into the ground, creating a vacuum of space that the second bunker-busting bomb can penetrate up to 60 feet below the surface and then blow up. So if there's a stash of weapons, if there's people hiding out underground, it goes down and it blows up. Bunker busting bomb. That's incredible. You know what we need in our life today? We might need a bunker busting bomb we've covered over, we've glazed over, we've cemented over some places in our hearts that are so hard to get to, we won't let anybody in. And we need the Spirit of God to set us free there. If we're going to see the full work of the full redemption of God in us, of Christ in us, he's going to have to go to those dark spaces, those dark alleys, those detours, those dead ends that we're living in. Let's pray together. When you come to a message like this, it's heavy, no doubt. It causes every one of us to think deeply, I pray. I hope whatever shell that you have that covered over, that there is a bunker-busting work of God happening inside of you right now. You won't hide. Whether it's a sin of omission or it's a wound that you're carrying and and now you're inflicting on the next generation, whatever it is, bring it out. Confess it. Don't conceal it. Deal with it. And let the Spirit of God begin to work. The Spirit of God begin to work. The blood of Christ to begin to cover. And the love of God to begin to embrace you like never before.